everyone. Welcome to the podcast of the Vineyard Church, Chester Springs. We invite you to join our mission to love like Jesus, and you can connect with us on social media or visit our website, csvineyard.org. Now for this week's talk, brought to you by co-lead pastor Amos Grunendijk. Last week, we talked about something that I think is foundational or core to, or that needs to be transformed in order to love more like Jesus, and that is giving up our desire to try and control other people, to manipulate them through anger, shame, or blame. I've got a list of five things that might give you an indication as to whether or not you can be a controlling person. And the reality is, is that almost all of us, unless we've gone through some deep transformation, and even then I imagine that our desire to control other people creeps back, this applies to us all. And so this is, this is a foundational change in how we are and how we relate to other people. I don't know that you're going to get this figured out before we finish on this remodel. The, the remodel of your heart will be a lifelong journey. And just as, so this week you can, you can see we got farther ahead on the demolition of the closets than we were expecting, but now we're a week behind on the HVAC getting moved back. And, and that's how it is in life too. Like you'll be making progress here, you'll be working on something, but then something else you'll realize as it's exposed right? Like we are a little more exposed here than usual. You probably didn't even know these HVAC pipes came out like that, did you? Things will get exposed as you do a renovation, things you didn't know or expect, things that are inconvenient. Just like in any project, if you've ever done a project on your house, uh, I think think guys talk about it this way. Like the scope of the project starts as you're going to change out the carpet with some laminate flooring, but then you realize the floor isn't level, so you have to fix that, and then you realize something else, and that's kind of how it goes, too, as you start to do this inner work. I'm just going to stick with this metaphor until we're done. Does that sound like (laughs) a good plan? And going to that marriage conference, that's going to be a good way to do some renovation on your marriage, okay? And it's a great value. So 50 bucks is including childcare and free lunch. And if you invite a friend from outside the vineyard and they come, you both get in for 25. Like you're not paying for lunch and childcare for 25 bucks. That is a value. We're flying in one of the guys in the vineyard that is most respected when it comes to the topic of marriage. So I hope to see you on March 20. Um, let's pray and then we'll jump into today's topic. Jesus, we ask that you would send your spirit that you would let your presence be felt in and among us and between us. Do something inside of us today that transforms us to be more like you in the way that we love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to start today by rereading this book we finished with last week. It's called I Love You Through and Through. And I read this to my now almost 11-month-old daughter. But it creates a positive vision, I think, for what we want to do here in the way that we love each other, first of all. So there's this like horizontal reality 
that I think this book speaks to, but there's also a vertical one. It, it describes how God loves each of us, which is how we model our love for each other. So I love you through and through. I love your top side. I love your bottom side. I love your inside and outside. I love your happy side and your sad side. I love your silly side and your mad side. I love your fingers and toes, your ears and nose. I love your hair and your eyes, your giggles and your cries. I love you running and walking, silent and talking. I love you through and through, yesterday, today, and tomorrow, too. That's how God loves you. That's how we want to love each other. And the two lines that we're going to focus on today is from the book, I Love Your Sad Side, and I Love Your Cries. And you might be thinking, how in the world does this topic come into a series called Happy Together? Why would we be talking about grief and sadness in a series called Happy Together? It's because when I say happy together, I actually don't mean that we're happy, clappy, or all smiles all the time. I mean that there is something between us that describes what it looks like to be a community that follows Jesus, that we're connected to each other that we love each other for who we are, not for who we want people to be. It means that we rejoice with those who are rejoicing, but we also weep with those who weep. And this is, as some of you know, the first Sunday of Lent, which is the season leading up to Easter, which has historically been a time in the church where people are reminded of their own mortality. As they begin to reflect on Jesus' death, they remember that we too will die someday and that we have had people in our lives who have died ahead of us. And so what we're going to do at the end, which I'll describe in more detail, is we're going to light candles for people that we have lost and the Catholics do this really well. I had no idea even what size of candle or how to buy the right kind of lighting stick. The first set I bought, like, I, we probably would have burned the church down, but these are a little safer. Anyway, there's, there's an important thing here that I, I want you to hear. And that is, if we're truly going to be a community that loves like Jesus... We need to create space for people to be sad. We need to be at peace when people are weeping and even join in with their sorrow in an empathetic way. That's what it looks like to truly love like Jesus. And so let's, if you have your Bibles, you can open up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is a letter that Paul wrote. He wrote a good portion of the New Testament to a church. And it had been long enough since the death and resurrection of Jesus that uh, some of these 
peoples, friends and families and fathers and mothers and husbands and wives and even children had died. And so he's writing this primarily to comfort people who are grieving in this part of the book. He is not primarily trying to draw a blueprint for what the end of the world will be like, although there are some things to draw or gather from that too. So, so keep that in your mind. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, And now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to believers who have died. So you will not grieve like people who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. We tell you this directly from the Lord Jesus. We who are still living when the Lord Jesus returns will not meet him ahead of those who have died. This is kind of a strange verse that I'm not going to get into a whole lot, but the, the, one of the things that the Thessalonians were worried about is that their dead relatives would miss out on the moment where Jesus returns, which is described here in verse 16. For the Lord Jesus himself will come down from heaven with commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. First, the believers who have died will rise from their graves, right? So they'll be there for the party. Verse 17, then together with them, we who are still alive and remaining on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord Jesus in the air. And then we will be with the Lord Jesus forever. I want to start by focusing on verse 13. We want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died. So you will not grieve like people who have no hope. Now, I want you to notice something. Paul does not say, do not grieve. Did you notice that? He doesn't say, do not grieve, period. He doesn't say, there's no reason to be sad. He says, we want you to know what's going to happen so that you grieve. When you grieve, your grief will be informed by something. Your grief will have meaning. Your grief can run alongside what? Hope. So grief and hope. And I think this is something unique to the way that Christians believe uh, in regards to the truth that Jesus brings. Because what I often see in the world is, is a dichotomy. You have people who are either like, oh, death doesn't matter. Who cares? They've gone on to be in a better place. We're a drop that's returning to the ocean. So don't worry about it, right? So it's kind of like either the stoic or the, or the positive spin on death. Or on the other side, for, for people who, who don't have a belief in the afterlife, it's, it's all despair, right? There's nothing left. The light switch has been turned off. There is no hope. But what Jesus brings to us is an ability for grief and hope to run alongside each other. It's like, think of it like train tracks. They're, they're running together, and they're the path that we take toward wholeness, I, I don't see this happen very often or very well, and I think it has to do with our societies and our just humanity's discomfort with what we might call negative emotions, like sadness, like anger, uh, like fear, all three of which, right, 
are wound up into the grieving process. Am I right? You tracking with me? So what we often do with negative emotions is we try to pave over them like concrete and stuff them down. And we do that for ourselves, but we do that for other people too, right? We'll say, oh, don't worry about it. You know, so-and-so's been in a better place or is going to a better place. And if you're the person grieving, well, that probably makes you angry, but it doesn't really encourage or comfort you. The person's trying to be helpful, but it's actually the person often, I think, not, not just, you know, they're trying to help, but also they're trying to mitigate the awkwardness or the discomfort that they feel. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, many of you have decided to simply show grace to people who say things that are insensitive, even though it hurts just a little bit every time you hear it. And I, I know some of you who have lost people very close to you who are nodding your heads in agreement. I, I, I had a, a friend, it was actually Allison's friend, who I think did this so well. Um, she played, the, the friend like played piano in our wedding and was a mother of three and she died very recently of lung cancer, suddenly and terribly. And the husband, uh, I've never seen it before, affirmed the hope that he had in the resurrection of Jesus and that that his wife was now with Jesus and just incredible despair. Like, I'm not okay. My kids lost their mom. I lost my spouse. But he allowed himself to feel both hope and grief. And I, I don't have an experience quite like that. I think sometimes, like when I think of my grandma, I think, wow, I miss her. And like, oh, man, she's, she's in heaven, re, reunited with her husband. And, and I'm, I'm happy for her, but I'm sad for me. I, th- I think this applies maybe to other, if this will help you understand it. Like, for me, I woke up, there was a year where every day I woke up feeling sad and regret. So that would be like a negative. What I'm saying is it's not just like there's sad times and there's happy times. Like the sad and happy times get mixed together. I woke up every day and I was sad and I I was filled with regret. And that was a season where every morning I had to wake up and say, God, I need help to face this day. And so in some ways, that that was a season of incredible closeness to God, even though I was sad and even though times were hard. So those things can run in parallel. I think back to when my mom was diagnosed with breast cancer, like a time of incredible prayer and faith in my life. And every day I was afraid that my mom was going to die. Does this make sense to you? If you go to life group almost every week, tell us your highs and your lows, right? It's not just always high and it's not just always low. There's like these realities that run in parallel. I'm going to start first today uh, by jumping into hope and then we'll, we'll talk about Grief. I want to talk about the hope that we have. And Christian hope, people who believe in Jesus have a different kind of hope than the rest of the world. And it's different in this way. It's not simply uh, optimistic desire. Like, I hope there's something better. It's not well-wishing. It's not, the message of hope is not just a constructed thing that just makes us feel better about ourselves, our future, or the futures of people who have died. There's enough sharpness in it that you can see that it's not just the, like, the, the, the best case scenario, okay? The Christian hope is not just rooted in a, 
I hope this is how it happens future. The Christian hope is rooted in an event in the past. Paul talks about it here in verse 14. Did you catch it? For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. The hope that we have for life after death is rooted in the fact, the eyewitness accounts of the people who saw Jesus dead. And Jesus, ra- or Jesus was raised back to life by God the Father. Our hope is rooted in that. What, is, what happens what, since we believe this? Verse 16. Um, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. First, the believers who have died will rise from their graves. Then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up into the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Okay, in English, you can read right over this. But uh, the ESV study Bible, which I recommend to you guys all the time, was uh, very helpful here. It's something that my... um, was taught by a seminary professor who wrote a, a commentary on Thessalonians, but the ESV summarizes what's going on in the Greek here, the original language, very well. It says the Greek term apentesis, that's what gets translated as to meet, is often used of an important dignitary's reception by the inhabitants of a city who come out to greet and welcome their honored guest with fanfare and celebration, then accompanying him or her into the city. So what would happen, let's say, is Caesar or King What's-His-Face <laughs> would go out and, and, and conquer uh, the people's enemies. And then King What's-His-Face would start coming back, and, and the, the city is waiting with expectation. They would see King What's-His-Face off into the distance, and they, they would lead a procession. Like, think New Year's Day parade, like, Balloons and confetti, and, and they would go out and meet the king. And then what would happen? They would like go somewhere else. No, they would they would bring the king back into their city, the victorious king, in our case, Jesus, right back into the city. This happened with the eagles uh, a couple years ago. Do you remember this? It wasn't exactly all in order, but the eagles they went and they they defeated our enemies. Okay. <laughs> I don't remember where the game was, but the, the point is, is that, you know, our longtime enemies were defeated in the Super Bowl. The Eagles come back, and we, we usher them in. We welcome them in with free Bud Light and confetti and balloons. Uh, Philly, Philly, that's right. It's all coming back to me. And, and, and there's a parade, and, and, and so too, Paul is saying, that's what's going to happen. When Jesus returns, the, the dead will raise, and there's going to be this party. Now, I'm going to do this. It's a little risky. So sometimes this passage gets translated as we will meet the Lord in the air, right? Because Jesus went up into heaven, and so symbolically, at least how I read it, he's up there, so he's coming back from where he came from. And we meet, we meet Jesus in the air. Do we really get to fly? I'm not sure. I hope so. Now, if you don't know Greek, what happens after you meet Jesus in the air? You keep going. Right? Well, I've been up higher than this. 
But according to what we've learned from the ESV study Bible, what happens after we meet Jesus in the air? We party, but we, we, we usher him back into our city or our planet, as the case may be. Okay, I might be a Bible nerd, but this really amps me up. And I'm a little out of breath. That's the... Ah, baby life. Dad bod is a real thing. Okay. Here's... You might be saying, who cares? Okay, so, so again, the headline is, the dead get raised, right? People don't stay dead. Jesus comes back and like, bam, people come back. But then there's this, there's this symbolic thing where we meet Jesus and we bring him back home. And why is it significant that we bring him back home instead of kind of fly off? And by the way, I imagine like, again, as some Christians believe, not that I believe, and it's fine if you believe this, if you like kind of just get transported off planet Earth, I imagine it's like the Millennium Falcon leaving the Death Star. There's like... It's exploding, and you're flying off with Jesus, and woohoo, you know. But here's the problem with that conception. Like, to spend eternity in the clouds with harps sounds boring, sounds lame. So part of the good news, I feel like, is that when Jesus returns, when we're raised from the dead, like, there's an embodied eternity, like our, our current home in a renewed state, of course, Jesus brings new life to the planet just as he brings new life to those people who were dead. Our, our eternal home is here. And so the things you love most about here, like you get to enjoy on into eternity. It's just like it's been, it's, it's just been made better and a lot of Christian thinkers believe that it actually gets better and better and better and better and better and better and better, so that we don't get bored. So you might love climbing mountains, or you might love good wine, or you might love great food, or beaches, or rolling hills. This is what we get to enjoy for all of eternity, not harps and clouds and hymnals. This is the hope that we have. And underneath that idea is this relational connection that gets restored, this relational union. So there's like the cool stuff we get to enjoy, but ultimately it says we get to be with Jesus forever. And implied, different than Eastern religion, which says you're a drop in the ocean, we keep ourselves, like not just our bodies, we, get, we keep being ourselves. And exactly how this looks, we don't know, but, but we get reunited with people that we love. There is a relational current to heaven. And I have heaven in like quotation marks up there because I'm talking about heaven on earth I think that's the good news of the Bible. If you read to the end, spoiler alert, heaven comes crashing into earth. And what this passage is saying, like, we meet Jesus and the party's here. And the reason that the people who Paul is writing to are so sad is because they've, they've been waiting for this parade, but instead they've been stuck in all these funeral marches. Instead, like it, it's a parade of sorts, but it's sinister. And 
And when Paul talks about those believers who have died, this is not an abstract idea. These are mothers and fathers. These are people with names. These are people that are, are missing from the lives of those, those who love them. And we know that this isn't an abstract thing for us either. And I imagine that most people in this room have experienced some level of grief and loss. And so while we have this hope, grief runs alongside. The hope informs the grief, but doesn't minimize it. The hope gives meaning to the grief, but doesn't try to cement over it, doesn't try to pave over it. And I, I just want to share two reasons uh, that are both good like for us to realize, yeah, it, it's important for us to grieve, uh, but it's also important to let other people grieve. And the first comes from Brené Brown. If we can put up that slide. She's talking about vulnerability, and there's vulnerability in sharing, but there's also vulnerability in feeling. Like to simply let yourself feel deep things, especially sadness, fear, or anger, for instance, is a vulnerable thing for ourselves. She says vulnerability is at the core of all emotions and feelings, all emotions and feelings. To feel is to be vulnerable. To believe vulnerability is weakness, is to believe that feeling is weakness. To foreclose, that's a strong word, right? To foreclose on our emotional life out of a fear that the cost will be too high is to walk away from the very thing that gives purpose and meaning to living. Our rejection of vulnerability often stems from our associating it with dark emotions like fear, shame, grief, sadness, and disappointment. Emotions we don't want to discuss even when they profoundly affect the way we live, love, work, and even lead. What most of us fail to understand and what took me a decade of research to learn is that vulnerability is also the cradle of the emotions and experiences that we crave. Vulnerability is the birthplace of love, belonging, joy, courage, empathy, and creativity. It is the source of hope, accountability, and authenticity. If we want greater clarity in our purpose or deeper and more meaningful spiritual lives, vulnerability is the path. So what Brene Brown is saying in part here is you can't shut down the negative emotions without shutting down the positive ones. If you don't let yourself feel grief or anger or sadness, again, the way we act out of those emotions, we are responsible for. But if we're not even going to let ourselves feel those things, we are foreclosing on our entire emotional life. The thing that gives meaning to our time here and, and I guess the idea is, as we're in this series called Happy Together, we, we have to let people feel those things and not ourselves run from those emotions because then it's going to feel like you're running from those people who are feeling those things. It's important that we create space, right, for people to feel sad, to love people in their sadness, not to try to change them so that they won't be sad, so that we won't feel uncomfortable with their sadness. To really love people as they are means to love them when they're sad, 
and when they're grieving. And here's the second reason that I, I think informs the importance of our grief. That we must do it. That we must create space for it. And it is two simple words. Jesus wept. Jesus is the model, the example, the like prototype for what humanity living into its fullness looks like. He is the picture of, at, our, at each of our core, what we were meant to be and what we were meant to do. And so if Jesus wept, it is not a sign of weakness. It is not something to diminish or reject or push away. To be truly and fully human means that when people we love die, it means that we will weep if we want to step into what it looks like to be a whole human being. Jesus weeps when he finds out his close friend Lazarus has died. Now, if you know the story of Lazarus, you know that like four days later, Jesus is going to rise like with God's power, with his power. He's going to open up a tomb and Lazarus is going to walk out. Jesus had the hope and knowledge that Lazarus would be dead for a short time. And he still let himself grieve. And yes, it says here that people who believe in Jesus will be raised from the dead and be with him forever. And it will be a little bit longer than four days. But it's appropriate. It's necessary to let ourselves grieve and to create space for others to do the same. And so that's one of the things we're doing today. And we're going to do it right now. Um, but first, I'm going to invite the worship team up. And I want to explain the logistics before we kind of enter into a time of remembering and a time of grief. And I said this before, but one of the things we can do when we start to feel negative emotions is we kind of, we can run from it. In fact, I imagine somebody will like feel this temptation to, to run out the door right now. I'm inviting you to stay and feel some things that are maybe a little bit uncomfortable because that wellspring of human emotion is what makes life worth living. And so when I ask, as, as I said, I mean, maybe you guys know how to do this. Maybe since my church upbringing, we just never lit any candles. But it's a way to, memor to, to give memory and to commemorate and to honor people who have died historically in the church. And so you can use these sticks and light off the central candle to light a candle uh, for the person you've lost. And then these jars are full of water. So whether you blow them out or just dip them in the water, that'll keep us from burning the place down. So the first thing I want you to do, for many of us, there's probably one person that you are actively grieving. Um, maybe there's more. It, and maybe it's someone or a couple of people who have died this year. By the way, there's more candles here than there are people. So if, there's, if you lost two people this year, you can light two candles. But some of you are grieving the loss of someone 
who died years ago or decades ago. And it is appropriate to continue to feel grief because grief and death is not something you simply just get over after a month or two or a year or two. And so I want you to think of that person. I want you to picture their face. And I want you to whisper their name right now. The reality is that some people will be grieving the loss of a pregnancy, and so maybe there's not a name. Maybe it's just baby. Now I want you to think of two or three memories that you have of this person. And I want you to just one by one kind of replay those events in your mind. Remember where you were, remember what they were like. Again, if it's a pregnancy that you lost, a baby you lost, it's, it's not what you remember them doing, it's, it's the potential of what you hoped for, what you looked forward to. Thanks again for listening to the podcast of the Vineyard Church, Chester Springs. We hope you share this with your friends and family and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.